Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, well, welcome, welcome, and uh, thank you for coming out today. I'm Walter Lohman, Director of the Asian Studies Center here at the Heritage Foundation. I know you're all here to see Tony Abbott, former Prime Minister of, uh, of Australia. As you know, he was Prime Minister 2013 to 2015 and leader of the Liberal Party in Australia for a little bit longer than that, since, uh, since 2009. That's liberal in the good sense of the word here at the Heritage Foundation, the, the Conservative Party. In, uh, in Australia. All in all, he was uh, 25 years in, in, in Parliament representing Warringah, uh, Warringah District on the outside, uh, outskirts of, um, of Sydney uh, up until just, just last year. Um, but besides all of his bio, I think uh, the most important thing about Tony Abbott is that he's a good friend of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I have to say, as you look across the spectrum of political figures in Australia, there's um, Hardly one we agree with more than we do Tony Abbott. Now, I don't know if that helps you in Australia. That might handicap you a little bit to be so closely associated with us. But I have to say, every time you come here and, and talk, you give us sort of a, a, a new sense of priority. You reinforce our, our principles here, and you rededicate us to uh, U.S. leadership position in the Indo-Pacific and, and our support for the U.S.-Australia relationship. And I know some of your, your comments are going to get to those issues, those inter, international issues, but I also know that you'll be uh, perfectly willing and able and, and, and um, competent to address a whole range of things that may be on people's minds. So with that, let me turn it over to you, Tony, and get us started. Well, Walter, thank you, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here. It's uh, always good to be in Washington. It's always good to be at the Heritage Foundation in particular. Uh, I have a speech which uh, I'm going to deliver, and uh, I've worked on it, so uh, I think it's important that I do give you the speech that I've, uh, that I've written. But let me just begin by saying that uh, America is the indispensable country, uh, the only country on earth uh, with the strength and the goodwill uh, to consistently lead the free world. And uh, I like to think that Australia is America's indispensable partner, uh, the one country that America can always rely on uh, for help uh, when America needs it. So with those uh, introductory notes, uh, it's great to be here at the Heritage Foundation. Now, back in... November of 2014, when Australia hosted the annual meeting of the G20, it was by far the most important gathering of leaders ever held in my country, and it should have been a diplomatic triumph. But for President Obama, uh, choosing 
at that time to give a speech at the University of Queensland that was seen as an attack on my government's climate policy. Uh, at the time, there was pressure for me to rebuke him for discourtesy, but I chose not to because it was the duty, I thought, of the Australian Prime Minister not to be critical of the leader of the free world. Now, I have to say that on this trip to Washington, I've noticed that respect for the office of the president is not so common, even here in the United States itself. And that's a pity, if I may say so, because he's not just your president. As the leader of the free world, which the president inevitably is by virtue of America's singular strength and goodwill, in a sense, he's everyone's president. And the world needs him to succeed almost as much as America does. If the president is strong, America is strong. And if America is strong, Australia is stronger. Britain is stronger. Canada is stronger. Indeed, all the countries of the free world are stronger. And that's why so many people outside of the United States follow each president's triumphs and travails almost as closely as if we were ourselves citizens of this great republic. And much to the surprise of many, given the dismay that greeted President Donald Trump's election, indeed somewhat to my own surprise, given my view then that Mr Trump was almost uniquely underqualified for such an office, I think he's been quite a success. His style sometimes grates, but he has been a very good president. Maybe it's just been overtaken by Trump derangement syndrome, but for the first time in years, the main narrative is not one of American decline. For Obama, America couldn't be the world's policeman on its own and couldn't be the world's economic locomotive on its own. So it's refreshing, actually, that Trump doesn't talk about what America can't do, but what it can. Thanks to tax cuts and less red tape, American economic growth has surged. Employment has soared, especially for minorities. The stock market is hitting all-time highs and wages are finally increasing fast after decades of stagnation. Sure, Trump has shown more interest in boosting growth and in restraining spending to the dismay of fiscal conservatives. But as Ronald Reagan might have said, for the moment at least, the deficit seems to be big enough and ugly enough to take care of itself. For years now, it's been assumed that America's destiny was to be overtaken by China as the world's largest economy. And of course, that may still happen. But actually, it's China's economy that now seems under pressure in the face of robust American efforts to, to, to stop China taking advantage of the free trade that it never practices itself. The people who know China best, the rich Chinese who can't wait to get their money out and their kids educated in the West, and the people of Hong Kong who are risking bloody repression in support of their British heritage, don't trust the goodwill or the longevity of the communist regime. For years, it's been assumed that globalisation 
underpinned by freer trade was both unstoppable and, un and unambiguously good, even though it was much more obviously good for the rich people of poor countries than for the poor people of rich ones. Yet Trump's tariff hikes against China seem to be bringing more investment dollars home, boosting American manufacturing jobs and cutting the trade deficit while shrinking China's role in America's supply chains should cut the technology theft. For years it's been assumed that the price of American global leadership was putting up with unreasonable critics and free-riding friends. It was joining global agreements that were against America's best interests and it was turning the other cheek every time an enemy took advantage of American decency. That's how it was. But that's not how it is under Trump. Storming out of meetings is a rough way to make a point, but in refusing to be polite and to play by the old rules, Trump has actually improved America's position. He's called China a trade thief that was destroying American jobs. Mexico, the open back door that would have to pay for a wall. NATO allies, freeloaders who needed to get serious about their own defence. And the Paris Climate Change Agreement, a con, shackling America in ways that didn't bind other countries. It's been crude, but effective. And whatever you think of Trump's personal integrity, he's turned out to have had remarkable political integrity. He's done everything that he promised to do, including things that other presidents promised but never delivered, like moving the US Embassy to Jerusalem. He promised to cut taxes, and he has. He promised to boost the armed forces, and he has. He promised to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and he has. He promised to pull out of Paris, and he has. He promised to appoint conservatives to the courts, and he did. He promised to build a wall, and he has, at least to the extent that Congress would let him. He promised to bring, to bring China to book on trade, and he's certainly made a very strong start. He promised to pull America out of the endless wars of the Middle East, and with far fewer US soldiers killed on his watch, America is liked no less, but feared much more. Above all else, he promised to make America great again, and I think he's largely succeeding, fundamentally because his main instincts are sound, and supreme self-confidence means that he's never afraid of acting upon them. First and foremost, Trump is an American patriot. America made him, so he loves his country as he loves himself. Now, inevitably, there have been some questionable calls. Pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership was one, if only because for once it enabled China, with its rival free trade deal, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, to look more like a credible global leader than America. Pulling out of Syria could have been an abandonment of the Kurds, who had been America's most reliable Muslim allies in the Middle East. But he more or less reversed that decision 36 hours later, 
and one lot of American forces streamed in just as another was streaming out. And then there was the drone killing of Iran's top general. Now, in my view, it was an error not to respond more vigorously to Iran's downing of an American drone, seizure of Western oil tankers and attack on Saudi oil refineries. But then it might have been hard to respond proportionately to strikes that had made America look weak but had no actual casualties. But once Iran and its proxies had directly attacked Americans, Trump did what no one expected. He killed the very spearhead of Iran's attempts to export its Islamic revolution. Now, this could still have dire consequences, yet unmistakably it shows that you don't mess with America. Now, that might not be a recipe for success on Main Street, Middle America, but as we know, in the Middle East, gentle people are taken advantage of, while fierce ones are left alone. And there's a world of difference between a fight with Iran that Trump is obviously ready to pick and a war in Iran that Trump shows not the slightest inclination to wage. Between attacking Iranian facilities and preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon that America could well be up for and a ground invasion trying to bring about regime change that should really be the business of the Iranian people. Now, unarticulated perhaps, but real enough, there is emerging a Trump doctrine to use American economic strength against obnoxious regimes and to use military force to avenge any attack. To the Trump haters, the Soleimani killing was more evidence of wild oscillation between isolationism and interventionism, but more likely it just shows Trump's determination to hurt America's enemies, um, but not to add to America's responsibilities. From afar it does, let's be fair dinkum, it does seem unpresidential to threaten other countries with hellfire and personal to mock political foes as Pocahontas and Sleepy Joe. But maybe this political rally name-calling uh, is just a modern American version of the verbal battles that are routine in other countries' parliaments. And sure, it's unprecedented for the leader of the free world in a situation where words can be weapons to compulsively tweet against anything he doesn't like. On the other hand, given officialdom's tendency to fudge, maybe an unfiltered president is exactly what the world needs right now. With a new czar in Russia, a new sultan in Istanbul, as well as a new emperor in Beijing, and more great power jockeying than for many years, perhaps it is just as well that there's another rough rider in the White House. Even though Russian and Turkish meddling in Syria and Libya won't turn out any better for them than it has for Western powers, and China won't be strengthened by accumulating client states in the third world any more than other countries have. And why shouldn't 
America use first its economic strength with its military muscle in reserve in order to bring about its geopolitical objectives. What matters is that America and other Western countries should renovate their economies, rally their people, believe more in themselves and act where they need to, always weighing what will do more good than harm in order to protect their citizens, to defend their interests and to advance their values. And in America and in Britain and in Australia, this is happening. As Prime Minister, it was my view that it was presumptuous of a Western country like Australia to demand that other countries be just like us. In the Middle East, for instance, the most we could expect and demand was governments that didn't practice genocide against their own people nor permit terrorism against ours. In other words, punish bad behaviour, reward good behaviour and work with anyone where it's in our interests to do so. In my time, Australia flew military jets through China's self-proclaimed air defence identification zone, yet worked with China as we led the search for missing aircraft MH370. We did deals with our three largest trading partners to give us more like the same access to their markets that they had to ours. We were determined to bring back our dead from the MH17 atrocity, peacefully if possible, but forcefully if necessary. We joined the fight against the death cult caliphate, uh, but on the understanding that we couldn't do more for the Iraqis than they were ready to do for themselves. And while we worked with the Indonesian government to stop people smuggling, when they failed to prevent illegal would-be migrant boats from leaving their country for ours, well, we turned them round and we sent them back. And while I never thought that the prospect of a slightly warmer climate in some decades' time was the world's biggest threat, never thought that, I was prepared to sign up to emissions reductions targets in Paris, provided other countries did likewise, and on the advice that cuts could be achieved without loss of jobs and without new taxes. And, as Prime Minister, I tried to make it easier for President Obama by ensuring that Australia was always there to help. Now, I'm not sure whether these policies were liberal interventionist, neoconservative triumphalist or pragmatic realist, and frankly, I never really cared for tags anyway, provided the result was a stronger Australia and a better world. Now, it's said with Trump that you should take him seriously, but not literally. But actually, I believe there is a pattern to it. He talks loudly to make a point, but talks softly when he's carrying a big stick, when he's taken out a general, for instance, or forced a trade concession. And sometimes he makes speeches that stand comparison even with Reagan's. His recent speech to the United Nations, for instance, was a paean to patriotism over globalism and to decent values over ideology. He was highly critical of some governments, but respectful of countries and generous to peoples and to cultures. 
If you want freedom, he said, take pride in your country. And if you want democracy, he said, hold on to your sovereignty. You see, Trump is the first major leader in the Western world to have worked out that poorer people have become more conservative, just as richer people have become more progressive, and to have recast centre-right politics around a country we can take pride in and a community we have a place in as well as an economy we can make the most of. At least in the English-speaking countries, centre-right politics has never been very ideological or even especially philosophical. It's been about coming to grips with the troubles of the time in ways that correspond with people's best instincts. In the Eisenhower-Macmillan era, it was spreading prosperity through home ownership and higher wages. In the Reagan-Thatcher era, it was more economic dynamism through lower taxes and less regulation. And now in the Trump-Johnson era, it's still that, but with an added stress on pride in country at a time when so many of our citizens feel that everyone's interests come first but their own. You see, at the heart of the centre-right project has been care for those who are working hard but not necessarily getting ahead. The forgotten people, uh, my party's founder, Bob Menzies, called them. They're the people of the flyover states for Trump and the Brexiteers for Boris Johnson, just as they, they were once the Reagan Democrats or the blue-collar Tories. A lifetime of pitching to the public seems to have given Trump an instinctive feel for what I'd call social fabric conservatism. And unlike the left, where what matters is subscribing to politically correct beliefs, for the centre-right, what matters is attending to people's real concerns. Trump's people cheered draining the swamp because the Washington class like the Canberra bubble and the Westminster clique, the establishment, if you like, on both sides, had become more concerned with who was in power than with what was actually being done with it. Politics had become an insider's game, detached from the voters and their concerns. But now Trump is their man running the government, not Washington's man running them. Who would have thought four years ago that the reality TV capitalist addicted to tweeting would turn out to be a more effective president than the political insider who'd preceded him, blessed with soaring rhetoric and symbolising the country's ability to heal? That's what the impeachment-obsessed sore losers who dominate the Democrat Party still don't get. So yes, uh, everywhere our politics is becoming more fragmented and more polarised. The right is more right and the left is more left and there's a tendency to retreat into, into echo chambers. But all of us are still citizens of particular countries and we still need the governments of our countries to succeed. So rather than demonise everyone we disagree with, isn't it better to
to give our leaders, for the time being, at least some grudging respect. Four years back, had I been an American, I'd have been a reluctant Trump voter. But not now. He might sometimes seem crass or intemperate, but that doesn't mean that he's not the best possible president for America at this time. After all, when it comes to electing the president, people aren't choosing a saint or even a role model. They're seeking a leader. And the one thing you can't say of Trump is that he's been shy to lead. In my country, if you have a go, you deserve to get a go. And that's how I feel about the presidency right now, which I guess makes me uh, a supporter of keeping America great, an overseas supporter of keeping America great. But let's face it, it is a great country and all of us have a stake in keeping it that way. Well, thank you very much. Um, you know, one of the things I didn't say in introducing you, um, and I should have, is that you are a keen observer of American politics. I think you know American politics as well as any American. Um, I, I should have mentioned that in, in the lead up. Um, you know, I wanted to start, if I could, with a question um, that's more political and, and maybe more focused on Australia off the bat here. But, you know, for 10 or 15 years, if I think 10 or 15 years ago, the general take on the connection between conservatives here in the U.S. and conservatives or liberals in, in Australia was that they're different. You know, that in America where economic conservatives, you know, uh, focused on economic freedom and the rest, but we have this social element. And in Australia, they don't have that. In some ways, I think here the impression was they're cooler in Australia. You know, the conservatives are cool in Australia because they don't care about social issues. They just care about uh, low taxes and all the rest. I wonder if you could tell us something about the way that uh, conservatism in Australia is evolving because it seems to have evolved substantially in the last 10, 15 years. Okay, well, thanks, Walter. And look, um, I should uh, offer this opening observation that um, conservatism is not an ideology and I would be reluctant to even call it a philosophy. Uh, conservatism is a state of mind as much as anything else. Uh, it's a set of instincts. Um, ultimately, it's respect for what is and a reluctance to change what works other than where it's obvious that there is something that would be better. Uh, and invariably, that something which would be better is more of a restoration than a reform. Uh, it's going back to something which um, better suits uh, these times than that which had uh, perhaps corrupted what had well suited earlier times. So, so conservatism is certainly not um, a systematic ph philosophy based on a particular idea in the way that liberalism might be or socialism might be um, or communism uh, might be. So that's the first point I'd make. Now, Conservatism tends to be 
what people who regard themselves as conservatives um, think and do at any particular time. And the greatest contemporary conservative in Australia obviously was uh, John Howard, uh, uh, our 25th Prime Minister and the longest serving Prime Minister other than Bob Menzies, the founder of the Liberal Party. Now, Howard uh, said that uh, the essential position of the Liberal Party uh, is to be economically liberal and socially conservative. Uh, what he meant by that was that we tended to support uh, the market in economics, uh, but we tended to be traditionalists uh, when it came to other things. Um, I think conservative conservatism in Australia is, is, is no less conservative on social issues than it was. Not that we're always successful in defending um, traditional values. Uh, but I think it's becoming less liberal on economic issues. I think conservatism in the English-speaking world is becoming less liberal on economic issues. Uh, um, President Trump is not a free marketeer in the way that President Reagan was. Prime Minister Johnson is not a free marketeer in the way that Margaret Thatcher was. Neither Reagan nor Thatcher uh, were... Um, uh, uniformly market-oriented, uh, but in those days, uh, and let's face it, we were reacting against the statism of the 50s and 60s and the 70s, the sclerosis of the 70s in particular. In those days, uh, there was a great deal of enthusiasm for markets. I think today, uh, while we all accept that markets are the best engine of wealth generation, I think we also accept that wealth generation is not the only thing that we should be on about and that the social fabric uh, is incredibly important uh, as well as the wealth of our country. So this is a bit of a, of a long-winded discourse, uh, but nevertheless, Walter, uh, I do think that uh, um, conservatism takes on the temper of the times uh, you remember back in the days of the Clinton election, there was that phrase, the economy's stupid. I think these days the equivalent would be to say um, society stupid. Uh, we're more conscious of the importance of the bonds of solidarity today uh, than we might have been 20 or 30 years ago. That was terrific. Thank you. Um, and now I wanted to turn to a question uh, more international and, and gets right to the topic of your talk, what next after America? Um, what is the answer to that question? What, if not America leading, especially in the Indo-Pacific, but globally, what other choice do we have? Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. Um, I chose a topic and then I wrote a speech and the speech didn't quite fit the topic. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, that's, what's, that's what happens. Uh, um, you think, let's talk about something, and then as you start to think about it and write about it, you decide that there's actually something more interesting uh, and more urgent, and so you go off in, an, in, a, in another direction. Look, um, <laughs> there is no doubt uh, that there are 
more challenges uh, to American prestige and strength, economic and military, uh, today uh, than for quite a few decades. But the interesting thing is that under Trump, um, America doesn't appear to be daunted by those challenges in a way that I think it had been uh, before Trump. I think post-Trump, well, we don't know. We don't know what the post-Trump era will look like because uh, um, uh, we haven't got to that yet. But 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 the singular feature of Donald Trump is that he has supreme self-confidence. Uh, in himself and in his country. Uh, and that, frankly, was the missing ingredient in the previous presidency. Uh, and frankly, uh, there has been a diffidence uh, to the West um, for much of the post-war period. Um, it, it, it uh, you know, our confidence waxed under Reagan and Thatcher uh, it waned uh, under their successes. I think, again, it's starting to wax under people like Trump and Boris Johnson, and that's a good thing. Thank you. I want to take some questions from the audience. There's quite a bit in the news. I'm sure there are questions out here. Yes, right here, the yellow shirt. Yes. Please identify yourself if you wouldn't mind. And ask sure, in my record. You mentioned the free world a number of times. Is there an unfree world? And if so, what should Australia's relations be with it? Well, obviously there are lots of important countries which uh, don't enjoy freedom in the sense that uh, we enjoy freedom in Britain, America, Australia and Western Europe. Um, China's not a free country, as the people of Hong Kong are only too well aware. Um, I don't think uh, Turkey is becoming more democratic. I think it's plainly becoming less democratic. Uh, Russia seemed to have a, a period of um, anarchic freedom, but plainly that's not the case under President Putin. So, yeah, there are, there are lots of countries that don't enjoy um, the sort of freedom that uh, we take for granted. Um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't work with those countries, uh, and certainly uh, I was only too happy to work with China where it was in our mutual interests to do so. Uh, but I think it's also important to accept that uh, um, if a country is not free, it's not free. Uh, and not to gloss over uh, those differences. I think for a long time there was this uh, rosy assumption on the part of many of us uh, myself included, perhaps, uh, uh, that China and the West were on kind of converging paths. But uh, I don't think anyone would say that that's the case now. And I think it's been obvious, at least for the last few years, that that, that, that is not the case. So, so look, um, um, the world comprises um, some 190 uh, different countries, uh, big and small, um, similar and dissimilar, uh, free and not free. And the important thing is um, for those of us that are free uh, to do what we can to nudge the world in the right direction, uh, always accepting that 
uh, it'll never be perfect uh, and we can easily end up doing more harm than good um, if we uh, blunder into situations where angels would fear to tread. The trickiest one of those is the Chinese, right? I mean, because uh, China, as you say, is far from free, uh, but it's essential to the Australian economy. Um, um, what's the future of Australia's relationship with China, given that, given that dynamic? Okay, well, um, it's a good question, and um, there will be lots of senior business figures in Australia uh, that would urge the Australian government to avoid doing anything that might upset um, the Chinese government, uh, not for argument's sake to uh, um, support American freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea, uh, not to protest about what uh, may be um, in the offing in Hong Kong, um, not to meet with the Dalai Lama and so on. Now, I certainly don't think that we should be gratuitously offensive to anyone. Um, uh, certainly we shouldn't be gratuitously offensive uh, to China, given its uh, significance to us and to the wider world. But I think we've also got to appreciate that uh, China doesn't do deals with us because it's benevolent. Uh, China doesn't trade with us because it's doing us a favour. Uh, China trades with us because we're a very good trading partner. It gets good products at, at a good price. And uh, it would actually be against China's long-term self-interest. Uh, it would be cutting off its nose to spite its face if China were to change its trading patterns uh, to uh, uh, try to punish Australia, for argument's sake, for being a reliable strategic partner of the United States. So... Um, as always, these things are balancing acts, uh, but but um, in the end, um, you've got to have uh, your own self-respect, and uh, the last thing you should do is uh, is 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 sell your soul for a short-term financial gain. Yeah, I, I can say watching the debates in Australia from afar, um, that's a perspective that's sometimes lost, I think, in, in Australia. You talked a lot about confidence in the United States. Um, again, from afar, an outsider, sometimes it doesn't seem Australians have enough confidence in their own, in their own country and its assets and the, and the value that it brings to the table when dealing, dealing with China. It's all China as the demandeur. Uh, and and um, and Australia as the respondent in those uh, situations. Uh, other questions, right here, in the red dress. Uh, Leah from Voice of America. Um, in your speech, you talked about the phase one uh, trade deal between the United States and China. You think uh, President Trump has made a very strong start. I'm wondering. Um, can you talk a little bit about the impact this phase one trade deal between U.S. and China might have on Australia? Uh, that's one. The second question is, you know, Australia is part of the uh, Trump administration's Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, from Australia's point of view, um, do you think this strategy has been effective in balancing China, if not containing China? Thank you. Well, the, the first point to make, I suppose, is that... Uh, 
it is uh, absolutely in Australia's interests and it is absolutely in the interests of uh, the Indo-Pacific region that America retain uh, a very strong involvement. Um, I don't think there's any country in Asia other than China itself that wants America to quit uh, its positions uh, in, uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So that's the, uh, the first point to make. Um, second point to make is that there is absolutely no doubt that uh, uh, China has taken advantage of uh, a globalised economy. Um, and look, all credit to uh, the Chinese people and government for the extraordinary advances in human well-being um, that have been the result. Um, I mean, lifting half a billion people from the third world to the middle class in just over a generation is one of the most remarkable, if not the most remarkable advance in material well-being in the whole of history. So all credit to the Chinese uh, for this. Um, but the fact remains, uh, the Chinese system is very, very different from ours. A world dominated by China would be very different from the world we've known uh, for the last century or so. And I think it would be a worse world in almost every respect. And the fact that uh, Chinese people who can uh, want to get their money out of China, uh, want to get their kids educated in the West, uh, want to see if they can acquire property in the West and uh, passports of Western countries, says all you need to know about the real nature of the current uh, Chinese government. Does this reflect badly on the Chinese people? Well, no, it doesn't, because if you look at Singapore, if you look at Taiwan, if you look at Hong Kong, if you look at the way Chinese people uh, live uh, in countries such as Australia and America, uh, there, is, uh, there is no kind of um, authoritarian gene in the Chinese people, uh, as we have seen, uh, looking at Taiwan and, um, and, and Hong Kong and uh, Chinese people uh, who are uh, living in countries like this. Um, as for the, the uh, phase one trade deal, let's see how it works out. Um, at the moment... Uh, it's, it's really an aspiration. Um, it's a commitment. Uh, it's not something that's been delivered upon. Um, if China goes ahead and buys billions and billions more from the United States, that's all well and good. My suspicion is that uh, uh, that won't have a huge impact on Australia's exports. Um, our main exports to China are things like coal, iron ore, uh, natural gas and uh, boutique foodstuffs. Um, it seems to me that it's more commodity foodstuffs that America is going to be exporting to China and I don't think Australia is in that market to the same extent. Hi, Tony. Matt Not from the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper. Um, you would have seen that the bushfires in Australia are getting a lot of attention here uh, the front page of the papers here, and people here may not know you've been out uh, fighting the fires on the front line. Um, in many publications here, Australia is now being held up as kind of an example of what will happen if the world doesn't take action on reducing carbon emissions as kind of a poster child 
for a lack of action on climate change. What's your reaction to that? And also, I was wondering uh, if you have, uh, if you think that the Prime Minister has, uh, his reaction to the fires, has he made any mistakes? Uh, he took the holiday to Hawaii when the fires was happening. Was that a mistake? What do you think of the way he's handled it? Well, I, I don't think anyone could uh, fault uh, the extraordinary effort that the Prime Minister has put into uh, responding to the current, or now I think starting to recede, bushfire uh, emergency. Um, in terms of uh, money, in terms of time, and in terms of commitment of the armed forces, uh, it's been quite unprecedented. So, uh, so all credit to Scott Morrison for what he's done there. Um, now, just on the subject of, of climate change, uh, look, uh, um, I had a, um, if you like, a, a, a standard response whenever I was asked about climate change. I said, climate does change. Um, mankind uh, does make a difference and we should do what we reasonably can to limit emissions. Of course we should. We should rest lightly on the planet. But, I would always say, um, we shouldn't damage our economy um, in the pursuit of environmental objectives, uh, particularly when uh, it might turn out to be counterproductive. We all know that stronger economies are much better at managing the environment than weaker ones. Uh, you only have to look at um, the United States on the one hand and the countries of Africa uh, on the other hand. So, so look, um, every, everything associated with an extreme weather event uh, these days is taken as proof of climate change. Um, bushfires uh, prove climate change. Floods proved climate change. Uh, Superstorm Sandy, I think, that proved climate change. Uh, whether it's extraordinarily cold or extraordinarily hot, uh, whether it's extraordinarily dry or extraordinarily wet, it all proves climate change. Because if you think climate change is the most important thing, um, everything uh, can be turned uh, to proof. Um, I think that to many... Um, it's, it, it has almost a religious aspect to it. Um, I think the Prime Minister is right. Uh, he said that climate change uh, may be playing a role uh, in the drought which uh, triggered the bushfires. But we've got to remember that uh, bushfires are hardly unknown in Australia. And while the current bushfires are probably the worst that New South Wales has experienced, uh, and the current bushfire season has been uh, very extensive. Uh, the duration may be unprecedented. Um, in terms of uh, burning uh, out large parts of the country, no, not unprecedented. Uh, in terms of death, no, not, not unprecedented. Um, the Black uh, Saturday bushfires in Victoria killed 173 people. The Ash Wednesday bushfires of 1983 killed 75 people. The 1974 fire season, um, uh, that burned out more than 100 million hectares compared to about, I think, 6 million hectares so far this season. So, look, um, I'm uh, not one of those people 
who sees the current bushfires uh, as a confirmation of all we've ever feared uh, about the changing climate. Uh, I see the current bushfires as the sort of thing that we are uh, always going to be prone to uh, in a country such as ours, a land of droughts and flooding rains, as the poet uh, said all those years back. That said, obviously, we do have to take sensible measures to reduce emissions. And the great thing about Australia is that uh, while we're not uh, perhaps uh, uh, the most enthusiastic uh, members of the, uh, of, the, of the climate squad, we are actually meeting our Paris targets in a way that very few other countries do. Um, and I think we should get more credit for actually keeping our commitments when it comes to reducing emissions. Thank you very much for the wonderful speech. Uh, I'm Angel with Hong Kong Phoenix Television. And my question is, um, how is Australia is going to balancing the Australia and China, balancing the Australia and China relationship and as, at the same time as Australia and the US relationship? And do you see that um, China and Australia will keep deepening their relationship as trading partners in the future? What might affect as them as like the largest trading partners right now? Thank you. Okay, well look, John Howard had a, had a way of putting it. Uh, he said, Australia doesn't have to choose between our history and our geography. Um, and I had my own way of putting it when I was Prime Minister. I said, you don't make new friends by losing old ones. And, and I think it's more than possible for Australia to have um, an extremely intimate strategic partnership with the United States, while at the same time to have a strong and growing economic relationship with China. Um, I think there are some things that uh, China and Australia are always going to disagree about uh, as long as China remains a, a communist autocracy and Australia remains a liberal democracy. But uh, that's life. Um, people don't always agree. Countries don't always agree. The important thing is to manage the disagreements and so far we've managed to do it well. Uh, thank you, uh, Kitty Wang with NTD TV. Yeah, um, as uh, US have this uh, free open Indo-Pacific strategy, so from your point of view, what can US and uh, Australia do together more in this field to promote the values here? Well, look, I, I think uh, uh, Australia and America are, are doing a lot, and uh, I can't think of anything where we haven't done uh, as much as is reasonably possible. Um, so look, uh, I, I think the important thing uh, is uh, for the United States uh, to stay uh, very closely engaged in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, you might be uh, hinting at uh, what should the Western response to things like the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank be. Um, and if you are, 
I think that we need to be careful uh, about anything which creates a debt trap for other countries. And this plainly is uh, um, a potential outcome uh, of the sorts of measures that are happening under the so-called Belt and Road Initiative. Um, not good for the recipient, and in the long run, I suspect, not good for the donor. Um, uh, the United States Development Aid, Australian Development Aid, is invariably directed to strengthening the recipient as opposed to establishing a relationship of dependency between the donor and the recipient. And I certainly don't think that in response to Belt and Road initiatives, uh, we should uh, engage in, uh, in that kind of activity ourselves. You know, maybe even a, a uh, hotter topic than that is the issue of telecommunications technology and where Australia is going with that, where everyone is going with regard to 5G and Huawei, et cetera. Can you comment on that? Well, look, um, uh, the position of my government was that uh, we uh, didn't want to see Huawei uh, deeply embedded in our telecommunications infrastructure. Um, it was, in fact, a decision of the former Labor government, which my government maintained to exclude Huawei from the national broadband network. Um, it was a decision of the Turnbull government to um, exclude Huawei from our 5G uh, telecommunications system. And uh, I, think that was, I think that was a correct, correct decision. Um, I, I do think there are issues when, I mean, given that uh, in China uh, there is um, a degree of government involvement in business and a degree of government direction of business that is completely unknown uh, in countries uh, such as ours, I do think that we have to be very careful about too much involvement by China in strategic supply chains. And I think President Trump is very much alive to that. And I think that uh, what we are seeing is uh, some unbundling of those uh, supply chains, uh, at least in respect of uh, America and China. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Right here in the center, and uh, I'm going to get a couple here because I, this will probably be the last round. Yes, uh, Gerald Chandler, could you just make some remarks about changing uh, Australian attitudes toward immigration reception of uh, refugees and republicanism? And then down here with the blue shirt. Hi, Tony. Um, do you share former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's? Um, belief that China and the US can cooperate in a prolonged sense instead of just the temporary, as in they can exist, you know, the world order can exist together. Anyone else? Yes, right here. Um, about America. Could you identify yourself, please? Anne Pierce, I'm an author, especially in American foreign policy. Uh, you talked about America's singular strength and goodwill, which I 
agree with, but I feel that Americans recently have so much less goodwill toward each other, and I feel that there's this tendency to care less and less about people living um, in just horrible conditions with atrocity committing regimes and less concern by Americans about the human rights of people around the world and more sort of feeling sorry for ourselves, especially obviously on the left. But um, I wondered if you have a uh, sense of Americans changing in that direction. Thank you. So three questions and, and whatever else you'd like to wind up with here. Okay. Well, look, thank you. Uh, Immigration. Australia, like America, is an immigrant country. Um, and and uh, the fact that people can come to Australia from anywhere in the world and build a great life for themselves and be first-class Australians adds, I think, a wonderful, uh, humane and even heroic dimension uh, to our country. So uh, it's almost impossible to be an Australian and be anti-immigrant. Uh, but just because you're pro-immigrant... Uh, doesn't mean that you necessarily support any particular level of immigration. And I think there are issues with uh, um, current very high levels of immigration uh, to Australia because uh, um, at, at the record levels we've seen over the last uh, decade or so, I think uh, there is downward pressure on wages. I think there's upward pressure on housing prices. I think there's a lot of pressure on infrastructure. So. So I think you can certainly make a case uh, for returning immigration levels uh, more to the uh, long-term average than they have been uh, in the last decade or so. But, but look, um, that's not to be um, anti-immigrant. Uh, to be anti-immigrant, I think, is uh, almost to be anti-Australian. Um, on uh, uh, becoming a republic, well, look, uh, um, America is a wonderful republic. Uh, uh, Britain and other countries are wonderful constitutional monarchies and I think that uh, America's system of government is a product of America's history. Our system of government is a product of our history. Uh, you can't change the history and uh, you should be reluctant to change the system unless you are absolutely confident that the alternative is an improvement and I don't think there are any problems in Australia that becoming a republic would, uh, would fix. So... Um, uh, feeling for the monarchy waxes and wanes. Um, obviously, there's, I think, universal admiration and respect for the Queen. Uh, I think there's um, um, considerable enthusiasm uh, for many other members of the royal family. Um, from time to time, um, the human factor in all families uh, is something that we might, uh, I suppose... Uh, cheer or not, as the case may be, um, but in the end, uh, it's the system, not the individuals that we support. Uh, it's the office, not the office holder, that in the end uh, counts. And um, I don't think that the um, sort of personal stuff that we've been reading about uh, over the last uh, uh, few weeks is going to make any long-term difference to this wonderful institution. Um, China and America, look, uh, I think there's absolutely no doubt that we are in an era of great power competition. Um, the question is, where does it lead? Uh, now, uh, uh, we have to accept the fact that uh, um, uh, 
war between modern countries uh, uh, would be cata cataclysmic um, in a way that uh, was sort of been. And so I think we just have to have faith in the good sense of the leaders of uh, these countries to manage things uh, uh, effectively. Um, the United States and the Soviet Union uh, managed conflict and tension uh, not perfectly but uh, sufficiently well to avoid all-out war for um, 50 odd years and I'm sure that uh, the same thing can take place uh, uh, between the United States and China. And look, the last point that was raised, um, uh, it's interesting isn't it? Uh, there is a sense in which we have never been better off materially uh, and yet often we feel that we've rarely been worse off spiritually uh, than we are now. Um, this is a, a, quite a problem in the modern world, particularly in the modern West, and it expresses itself in so many different ways. Um, there's a bad temper, uh, um, a reluctance uh, to accept good faith um, today which is more pronounced uh, than a generation ago. Um, there's a tendency um, for our disagreements to be less and less civil uh, even in countries with a long tradition of, uh, of, of, of civil discourse uh, such as ours. I really dislike the fact that these days if uh, you disagree with someone, uh, they're not just mistaken or misguided, they're morally wrong. Um, because let's face it, uh, uh, no one has a monopoly on wisdom, um, no one has a monopoly on truth. Um, uh, there are few people and few arguments that we can't learn from in some in some way. So look, I I, I share your dismay uh, at aspects of our contemporary conversation, and all we can do is try in our own way to be um, uplifters uh, rather than draggers down, um, and. Uh, uh, it's not always easy, um, particularly um, in the heat of argument. We sometimes go too far and we impugn people's motives rather than simply um, criticising a particular position. Uh, whenever that happens, I think we should uh, uh, do our best to make amends uh, and resolve to lift our game. And probably most of us at the moment could lift our game. Well, thank you so much for those remarks, Tony. I'm so glad we could work this out today and, and have you here. Thanks again. That was good. Good on you, Walter. Yeah, thank you so much, you mate. Yeah. Thank you.